Hello and welcome to the latest Moneymakers Weekly Investment Trust podcast. I'm Jonathan Davis, the editor of the Investment Trust Handbook, and your host for this weekly review of all the latest news and developments affecting the investment trust sector. My thanks to JP Morgan Asset Management for agreeing to sponsor the podcast, which as a result will now remain free for the foreseeable future. Moneymakers is an independent research and publishing venture with a mission to explain and inform. But I must remind you that for regulatory reasons, nothing you hear from any speaker today should be regarded as constituting individual investment advice. Remember also that past performance, while relevant, is not a reliable guide to future performance. This week, the news has been all about the continuing consolidation in the investment trust sector as boards of subscale funds continue to react to the rise in interest rates and the subsequent continued derating that has been observed across the investment trust universe for the last 18 months. Two new proposed deals were announced yesterday, one involving two Japanese trusts and the other two, or possibly even three, trusts with debt and loan strategies. In addition, there was news of the planned retirement next year of Bruce Stout, one of the most high-profile managers in our industry, and also, if I may say so, one of my personal favourites for his no-nonsense forthright views about the way that things are developing across global economies and markets. Also this week, I'll be discussing the outlook for private equity with Colm Walsh, co-manager of the ICG Enterprise Trust, ticker ICGT, which has been a staple of the investment trust industry for more than 40 years, albeit with periodic changes in manager and strategy. And looking at the state of the commercial property sector, following a spate of second quarter updates in the past fortnight, with Emma Bird, the Head of Investment Trust Research and the Specialist Property Analyst at Winter Flood Securities. A general theme in both conversations being whether alternative assets have reached peak discounts or not, for which the debate about the future of the interest rate cycle is front and central. In that context, there was some mild encouragement to be had from the latest US inflation figures, which showed core inflation tipping from 4.8% to 4.7% for the latest reported month, a figure that Rishi Sunak and the Bank of England would die for, as it's more than 2% lower than our own equivalent inflation rate. And obviously, retail inflation is much higher even than that. But the US number seems to have convinced most investors that it's odds-on that there will be at least a pause in interest rate rises at the Federal Reserve's next rate-setting meeting next month. Bear in mind, however, that the peak in US inflation was 12 months ago, so the comparables will get tougher to beat from here on as those year-ago figures drop out of the year-on-year calculations. Meanwhile, the latest GDP data shows the UK economy is still expanding, albeit not by much, although these figures get invariably revised later, so should not be relied on too much. And there was a gloomy warning from the National Institute of Economic and Social Research that inflation in the UK will not get back to the Bank of England's 2% target before 2027, some two years behind the bank's own forecast. As a country, the Institute said, gloomily, we are likely seeing the re-emergence of the so-called, quote, British disease of stagflation, meaning persistent slow growth and sticky above-average inflation. For good measure, the Institute threw in the observation that pre-election tax cuts, something which historically tired and unpopular Tory governments are prone to uh, go for, would create, uh, I quote, an economic boon that would end very badly. Of course, it may not go like this at all. The track record of economic forecasters is pretty dire and should never be given much credence. However, the latest news was no help to guilds, where yields edged higher again, pushing down prices, particularly for longer-dated index-linked issues. In Europe, the announcement by the newish Italian government of a 40% windfall tax on banks was not well received, prompting a hasty rethink, while the data coming out of China all points to a concerning decline in growth. Bond yields were also up on the week in the US, while stock markets were little changed overall, with the Nikkei in Japan and Canada up, but the S&P 500 roughly flat, and the UK indices down between 0.4 and 0.5%. Energy prices were broadly higher, Natural gas notably so for a couple of days, but copper and gold were weaker. The average discount in the Investment Trust Index, which tracks the fortunes of around 180 investment trusts that are in the FTSE Orsha Index, was unchanged. But the index itself did age out a small gain, helped a little by improvements in the share prices of some of the trusts involved in the latest consolidation moves. A trend that seems to confirm that investors, on balance, are happy with the Darwinian process that is now beginning to weed out a number of the smaller and less successful trusts. The bigger of the two latest merger or wind-up announcements features two debt funds managed by the same firm, Gravis Capital. 
The two trusts are GCP Infrastructure, ticker GCP, which specialises mainly in making loans to renewable energy projects, and GCP Asset-Backed Income Fund, ticker GABI, which, as its name suggests, runs a diversified portfolio of mostly UK asset-backed lanes. If approved by shareholders, the combination between GCP, market cap around 650 million sterling, and GABI, market cap 260-odd, will create a bigger vehicle with more than 1.3 billion of assets. The two figures don't quite compute because, of course, both these trusts are trading at quite significant discounts. Given that the trusts pursue different strategies, it will require an investment policy change for GCP infrastructure, the surviving entity, to allow it to manage a broader range of assets than it does now. The deal will take the form of a scheme of reconstruction, with Gabby, the smaller trust, being wound up and its assets transferred to GCP infrastructure in exchange for shares, based on the respective net asset values, less transaction costs at the time the deal is completed. The board of GCP said that the enlarged entity would make a commitment to pay down debt by around 100 million sterling and return another 100 million in sterling to shareholders over the next two years through a combination of buybacks, special dividends and so on. And that's on top of the £15 million of buybacks already announced. At the same time, GCP Infrastructure announced that it had also approached another infrastructure debt trust, RM Infrastructure Income, ticker RMII, proposing a possible deal to take over the majority of that trust's assets. This one has a market cap of around £87 million in sterling. And like both GCP and Gabby, has recently been trading at a substantial discount to NAV. A big question for shareholders, therefore, behind these mooted transactions is whether they will have any impact on reducing the discount at which the eventual successor trust, the bulked-up GCP infrastructure, will trade, assuming the deals go through. The current discount is around 30%, and so there may be some pressure for a cash alternative. Also planning to get together to grow more scale, the two Japanese trusts, Nippon Active Value, ticker NAVF, market cap around $160 and Atlantis Japan Growth, ticker AJG, which is just under half the size. The agreed terms thrashed out by the two companies will see shareholders in Atlantis Japan being rolled over into Nippon Active Value with a cash exit for up to 25% of the share capital at a 2% discount to NAV. Rising Sun Management, which manages the Nippon Active Value Fund, will pay for the transaction costs up to a maximum of £800,000. These deals are never cheap. The board sees several benefits for shareholders from the amalgamation, including a larger capital base and increased liquidity. One director of AJG is expected to join the board of Nippon Active Value upon completion. Diligent listeners will remember that back in May we learned that Nippon Active Value has also agreed a separate deal to absorb Aberdeen Japan, ticker AJIT, market cap around $80 and documents for that deal are expected to be issued in September. The Aberdeen-Japan deal was triggered by an impending continuation vote after it failed to keep its average discount below 10% for a 90-day period, which is the trigger for a continuation vote. And it may be no coincidence that Atlantis-Japan was also coming up to a continuation vote. The mechanism proving its worth, it seems, as a way to concentrate boards' minds on doing the best thing for their shareholders. As mentioned earlier, Bruce Stout, the long-serving manager of Murray International, ticker MYI, will be retiring in June 2024 after 20 years at the helm of this Global Equity Income Trust. Martin Conahan and Samantha Fitzpatrick, two colleagues who have assisted Bruce in his role as manager for some time, have taken on co-manager responsibilities with immediate effect to help ensure a smooth handover. The Trust's latest interim results out this week show an NAV total return of 2.2%, a little way behind the 7.9% return of the FTSE All World Index over the six months to the end of June. The underperformance is driven by a lack of exposure to US mega-cap tech stocks, which rallied on what Bruce called the wave of exuberant enthusiasm for the perceived growth possibilities for artificial intelligence, the kind of speculative surge that his trust has never chosen to chase. The trust, which pays a 4.6% dividend, has returned a compound 9.7% total return per annum since he took it on back in 2004. He goes on to describe the action of central banks worldwide of constantly hiking interest rates in response to stubbornly high inflation, as akin to, I quote, cracking a nut with a sledgehammer, which will not deliver the desired results as, uh, again, to quote, the shell usually breaks, but the kernel invariably gets pulverised in the process. A nice turn of phrase, you might think. Against this backdrop, the manager advises caution, 
highlighting that the investment focus of the Trust will continue to focus on quality companies and maintaining a diversified portfolio. With the retirement of such a well-known fund manager coming in a year's time, there is obviously will be some speculation whether the discount, which normally trades between pretty close to par as an informal 5% discount target, uh, may be tested, as often happens when, as I say, well-known managers retire. News also from US Solar Fund, ticker USF, which is guiding to shareholders that it is expecting to announce lower net asset value and a possible realignment of the dividend. Realignments of dividend always mean cuts rather than increases, with a new manager for the trust expected to be announced in next two weeks after the current management firm's five-year term expires in April 2024. The strategic review that this trust announced earlier in the year came to little, it seemed. No offers to take it on were forthcoming. But the board is continuing to sound a positive note, saying that the discount is optically wide. Another nice phrase, you might think, perhaps to uh, put a bit of gloss on a not very healthy situation. The discount on this one is more than 30% and says that it may be ready to embark on some share buybacks from possible future realisations. Finally, in the news category, in honour of my former co-host Simon Earth, I cannot fail to mention that Roundhill Music Royalty Trust ticker RHM, has announced the acquisition of the remainder of the music publisher's Big Loud Shirt catalogue and 50% of the writer's income stream from Craig Wiseman, a country songwriter who is also founder and owner of Big Loud Shirt. That will take RHM's ownership of this catalogue from 50% to 100%, some 1,200 songs. And the catalogue includes some three country songs of the year and over 40 number one hits, including such singers as Carrie Underwood. The Trust notes that streaming of country music is up 60% uh, over the last four years. And country music makes up 11% of the RHM portfolio. Country songs, you might be interested to know, recently held number one and number two positions on the Billboard Hot 100 chart for the first time in 40 years. RHM, like its fellow music royalty trust, Hypnosis Songs, continues however to trade on a very big discount of more than 40%, and some analysts have been asking the question whether continuing to increase the catalogue is a best use of shareholders' funds, given the wide discount and the not inconsiderable credit facilities that these trusts rely on. However, they may draw comfort from one of the songs that's now been acquired by them, which has a spending title of Live Like You Were Dying. I wonder if that's a metaphor for this particular trust. Turning on to results then, we had a couple of significant annual results. One was from Bailey Gifford US Growth, ticker USA, market cap around 475 million, which has been having a tough time recently, but for the latest 12-month period reported NAV total return of minus 2.7 during a 12-month period when the S&P 500, its benchmark, was up by 4.7%. That's over the 12 months to the end of May. No shares have been repurchased because the board says that it prefers to invest in new growth opportunities with any surplus cash rather than repurchase shares. This trust has a distinctive Bailey Gifford style growth strategy, as well as having around a third of its portfolio in unlisted private companies. However, the board does note that it has underperformed the S&P 500 over five years on both an NAV and share price basis, which it says has left the managers dissatisfied, but they urged patience. And it's fair to say that this particular trust has been on something of a roller coaster since it came to the market five years ago. It went from a share price of 100p all the way up to 400p during the post-COVID bull market, but is now all the way back down to 157p. Also, annual results from Diverse Income Trust, ticker DIVI, managed by another long-serving manager, Gervais Williams of Premier Mighton. This trust reported a disappointing NAV total return of minus 16.2% for the year to the end of April. It does pay a dividend of 5%, so this is not all bad news for investors, but uh, the board here has been very active, unlike that of Bailey Gifford US Growth, buying back uh, some 37 million shares over the period, equivalent to 10.5% of the share capital, buying back essentially through redemption offers. However, Gervais Williams, like so many other UK fund managers, making the point that the UK market looks pretty cheap, with the portfolio of this particular trust on a 1.2 times book valuation, which compares to the S&P 500's price-to-book ratio of 4, and the FTSE all shares 1.6 times. There are also interims, and as always, these results and all the other latest announcements will be available on the Moneymakers website for subscribers to the Moneymakers Circle. Notable amongst the interims, though, I might just pick out two or three. 
JP Morgan American, ticker JAM. It's a very large North American equity trust, which returned an AV total return of 14.8%, nearly 5% ahead of the S&P 500 index for the year to the end of June, beating the S&P, something that not many funds are able to do consistently. This trust also repurchased 3.4% of its share capital. There are interims too from another JP Morgan trust, uh, JP Morgan Cleverhouse, JCH, which is a UK equity income trust. The total return there was a 0.7%, a little way behind the all shares, 2.6% for the year to June. Although here, one of its claims to fame is it as one of the AIC's dividend heroes and has just announced its 50th consecutive annual increase in dividend, although it was not quite 100% covered by earnings. There are also interims from Impact Healthcare REIT, NAV total return of 6.2%. This week's in-depth trust profile features the BlackRock Frontiers Trust. Next week, I have to tell you, the podcast and trust news and data reports will be coming out a couple of days later than normal as my colleagues Ben and Stuart are taking well-earned breaks. My video review of the infrastructure sector is meanwhile now available for subscribers to the Moneymaker Circle on the website. And there's also be updates for all the other announcements we've had this week, as I've said, including announcements from Syncona, the biotech and healthcare company, Foresight Solar, Octopus Renewables, Aquila European Renewables Income Trust, and Ecofin US Renewables Infrastructure, and a whole host of property trusts, which I will be discussing very shortly with Emma Bird of Winterflood Securities. More than half a dozen commercial property trusts have now produced their second quarter updates allowing us to review the performance across the sector this year. So my first question when I uh, caught up with Colm Walsh, the co-manager of the ICG Enterprise Trust, was discounts in the private equity sector, of which you're part, have been very wide for a long time now. Is there any confidence that you have that uh, this may be about to turn? Well, I think obviously discounts have dominated discourse, particularly on listed private equity in the last few months, and with good reason, because as you correctly state, discounts have been wide for quite a long time. I think as a team, what we're very focused on is developing our shareholder return proposition, if you like. So we've tried to do everything we can, focusing on having a portfolio that's resilient. We instituted a buyback program, and we've maintained a progressive dividend policy. And we keep working hard on all of those strands, if you like. It's very difficult to know when that's going to turn. But I personally remain very confident in the long-term proposition, the ability of the asset class to deliver outperformance. And it is a relatively young asset class as well. Even in the time that I've been doing this, the private equity industry has doubled. So we have a little bit of a paucity of data as well. So, sorry, it's a bit of a politician's answer. I'm not sure when it's going to turn. But I do very much believe that, especially, I believe in the asset class at no discount. So I certainly think that it's a very interesting proposition for investors at the levels of discount we see today. So the discount on your trust is, I think, around 38 39%, as I read this week. So something of that order. And that's pretty similar to some of the other trusts, comparable trusts in the sector that do something similar to you. So it is a general industry problem. I noticed the other day that the chairman of Pantheon International, one of those trusts, saying that uh, in general terms, private equity trusts have not done enough to put shareholders' interest first. Do you think that's a, a fair comment? In short, I don't. I think as a sector, we've been doing everything we can to try and improve. I mean, certainly from our perspective, but I think this is also true of many of my peers, there have been a lot of efforts to improve transparency, to improve the quality of reporting. I think most trusts have really analysed how they're delivering shareholder return. So in our case, we instituted buyback programme, as has Pantheon. So I think it's not something I would necessarily agree with myself. And I think we have a board that's very, very focused on shareholder return and gives us as a manager, I think, all of the challenges that shareholders would rightly expect to ensure that we optimise the shareholder experience. So what you do as a trust is slightly different from some of the peers, though. You operate mainly in what's called the mid-market sector of the yep. private equity world. Perhaps you could just explain for our listeners exactly what you mean by that and why you have a focus on that primarily and what are the attractions of that relative to some of the other models that we see out there. Sure. So I would say if there's one thing that characterises our approach, it's a focus. And we're focused on a particular segment of the market within private equity. So you mentioned the mid-market, but within that, we are exclusively focused on buyouts. So that's to say we invest in companies that are profitable, 
cash generative, typically well-established companies, typically market leaders in their field. We only invest in developed private equity markets, and that's predominantly North America and Europe. And we do so alongside mid-market managers, but well-established managers, what we consider to be top-tier private equity managers. And then even within that, we focus on backing companies that have what we call defensive growth characteristics. In other words, they have the ability to grow even during difficult or volatile economic conditions. And that's because they're typically their growth is underwritten by very strong secular trends. So it could be things like, if you look at our portfolio, it's the adoption of cloud-based software, it's pet ownership, a whole wide variety of things. So you invest across sectors. And that's in contrast to many of our peers who invest in asset classes like venture capital, growth or distressed private equity, or they invest in emerging markets. Now, the reason we do what we do is we think that focused approach is what optimizes risk-adjusted returns. And you can see that from our performance over the last five years, where we've delivered NAV per share total return growth around 16, 17%, which we think speaks to a, a very consistent, resilient approach. You know, when we look at our portfolio construction, the top 30 companies, which are around 40% of our portfolio, they exhibit many of these uh, you know, defensive growth characteristics. And it's an active approach. So we've most of these assets are co-investments where we've been able to do the underlying the diligence on the underlying asset. So you say you have great faith in the net asset values, yet we have this near 40% discount. Why do you think, therefore, those discounts do exist? What is the reason that you cannot find enough buyers, if you like, to drive those discounts in at the moment? And that's been that way, obviously, for a little while, as you say. Yes. And, and it's something which I think there are various different theories, one of which is that people don't trust in the NAVs, which I understand. Actually, my backgrounds. I used to be an auditor. So I used to audit private equity valuations. That was my first role sort of interfacing with private equity quite a long time ago. So I, I totally get where people are coming from because it does smack to people of the industry marking its own homework. But a few things on that. Nobody in private equity gets paid based on unrealized valuations. So there is no incentive for managers to overcook valuations to look good because they're not rewarded on that, unlike in some asset classes where people get paid based on unrealized marks. The other thing I'd note too is that there's a very long track record within private equity of when things are sold, there's a consistent pattern of assets being sold at strong uplifts the previous carrying value. So I think the problem is potentially a perception of marking your own homework. But actually, when you look at the data, I'm very confident that the methodologies and the process used to derive those valuations is very sound, very robust. And the other thing worth noting as well is, I mentioned I was an auditor. When you look at our last published full set of results to the 31st of January, virtually all those valuations are audited. So it's not just a case of the manager preparing valuation, it's just accepted. That valuation is also subject to significant challenge as well. The other thing here is that if you're right, and the net values are correct, you're trading at this big discount, you know, there are um, some even bigger beasts out there. Why don't they come along and take you out? What did you think about that? You'd have thought that in an efficient market, that would be what would happen. Ah, now that's obviously a, a very uh, difficult question as a manager to answer. I remain confident that this is a temporary phenomena, that these discounts will eventually unwind. As we discussed earlier, it's very difficult to provide a precise timing for that. To your point about the valuations of the efficiency of the market, it's worth noting that the secondary market, and there's obviously a private secondary market for funds, you don't see this level of, of discount. So I think eventually that it will correct itself. It has done in the past. It's just, as is always the case with markets, it's very difficult to anticipate the timing of that and what will be the trigger for that unwind. Just to pursue that point one stage further. Some people say that the problem with private equity is the high fees. Another problem people say is that wealth managers these days have to disclose the cost of their investments and they look very high. Well, they are quite high on private equity, higher than other things they invest in. And then, of course, there's also this issue of debt costs and rising bond yields and so on. While there's not much debt at the trust level, there's obviously a lot of debt in the buyouts that you're actually doing. So if you just take those in turn, first of all, the perception that fees are high and wealth managers just can't bring themselves or regulators don't allow them to invest in things that look very expensive. Yeah, and that's definitely been a headwind for the listed private equity sector because the methodology for reporting on the kids' statements, what the fees are, does mean that relative to other asset classes, the headline fees are high. 
And the reason for that is because it's a highly active, engaged strategy. So those fees are used to support the companies to provide operational backing to those companies, operational improvement. And that's a sort of apples and pears comparison when you compare that to the fees you pay to a listed equity manager. So I think the only thing I can say about that is the fees that we pay to our third party managers are the same that all other investors in the asset class pay. And when you look at those unconstrained investors, you look at the world's large pension funds, the large sovereign wealth funds, so people who are able to access whatever they want, whatever asset classes they want, that are totally unconstrained by resources. There's many examples where they're increasing their allocations to private equity. So I understand the pressure that wealth managers come under in terms of fees. But equally, I think that that approach can sometimes mean that relative to other investors, the private investors, people with, for example, defined contribution pension schemes, are under-allocated to alternatives. That is a fair point to make. But in terms of rising bond yields, we've obviously had this period of very concentrated and very sharp increases in interest rates by central banks, certainly in the UK, US and Europe. We've also seen bond yields rising to match that. So what is the impact of that? That must have a negative impact on some of the things in which you're invested. Because in due course, some of those investors, companies you invested in or funds you invested in will have to pay higher debt costs. So you would have expected some sort of consequences of that, this yeah. environment we're now in. How would you answer that? In other words, you say, how are you coping with that? And how severe a problem is it for the underlying investments that you're making? Well, the first thing I'd notice is I think that what we're now in is actually much more normal when you look at economic history than the periods we've just been through since the global financial crisis. And we're backing managers that have invested through more normal times. So listen, it's fair to say that all else equal for an existing portfolio, I say all else equal, you would much rather lower interest rates. And that's clearly the case. Lower cost of debt is clearly going to boost equity returns, all else equal. And that's an important caveat. But our managers are experienced in generating returns through more normal interest rate cycles like the one we're in at the moment. We're not backing new managers. So if you've backed a manager that was formed only since the end of the global financial crisis, they have never lived through this. And they don't necessarily have that institutional experience of managing through that volatility. But when you look at the kinds of managers we're investing in, that's not the case. And the other thing I would say is we never invest in managers that excessively rely on leverage to generate returns. So the managers we're backing, that upper end of the mid-market, a lot of their value creation is generated from operational improvements from strategic improvement as well. So it's never just reliant on leverage. And the other thing I'd say too is that you also have to think that this environment creates significant opportunity. Whenever you have volatility, it generates often opportunities for new deals. We've also seen opportunities for our companies to make add-ons as well. So you see prices adjusting and then that creates opportunity. So Whilst I would say in summary that, as I say, all else equal, rising interest rates looks like a bad thing. But there's lots of compensating factors with the result that I believe that you can still generate very strong returns and strong levels of outperformance, even in a higher interest rate environment. So does it make sense to ask the question, can you give us an indication of the kind of average amount of debt that you have in the kind of buyouts that you're doing? I know it's quite difficult to answer generalities, but give us a rough idea of what that would look like. Absolutely. So if you look at our top 30, the average is around four and a half times LTM EBITDA, so trailing EBITDA, which is relatively high, of course, by public market standards, but relative to new private equity deals, which are on average around six times, it's obviously a bit lower. But I take great comfort from the kinds of companies we're investing in. So we're focused on companies that have very resilient cash flows. And one of the things that we spend a lot of time looking at when we undertake diligence in those companies is how resilient they are to interest rate shocks. So first of all, looking at their hedging position. And, and it's very difficult to give you a precise number as to how many are hedged. But it's fair to say that our managers have a fairly conservative approach when it comes to managing risk. And therefore, a significant proportion of the portfolio is hedged, certainly in the short and medium term. So when I look at the sectors, I look at the resilience of the cash flows, and when I reflect on the work we've done in diligence, I remain very confident that the portfolio is resilient and able to cope with those shocks. And of course, there's a school of thought as well that we may well have been through the worst of it. We'll see. Obviously, as I noted earlier, I don't like trying to guess market timings, but so far, we've been very pleased with how the portfolio has reacted to the uh, economic environment. 
Can you give us a bit of a feel for what that would look like in terms of earnings growth or revenue growth or anything like that? Can you give us a general picture of that, either overall the whole portfolio or broken down into the different types of yeah. where you invest? So I'm on slightly sticky ground at the moment because we report to the 31st of July. So obviously we're in a closed period. But you can see from our 31st of January reporting, admittedly not capturing the full period, but the portfolio enjoyed very strong levels of revenue and EBITDA growth. Some of that was in the 20%. Some of that was, to some degree, a bounce back from COVID. So if you think back to 2021, the comparative period. But actually, when we look across the board in that year, the portfolio performed extremely well. And obviously, it's difficult for me to comment on the results for this year. But I think when you look at the types of companies we're investing in and their track record of growth, I continue to believe that the portfolio has got plenty of potential to continue its strong performance. Well, without going into specific details, perhaps you could just give us a clue as to your general feel about how the companies you're investing in think about the risk of a recession. That's been one of the big talking points of the year. It hasn't happened yet. We're talking mainly here about US and Europe rather than the UK because you're not a big investor in the UK anymore. What are they saying about the outlook for what they're saying? Are they seeing pressure on demand and also pressure from higher costs? Just firstly, by the way, on, on the UK, I would say the UK is still our largest European exposure. I think historically, we were over-indexed to the UK. So back in 2016, around just under half the portfolio was UK-based. We're still very strong supporters of UK companies and the UK economy. We've just tried to make it more market-weighted, if you like. In terms of the possibility of a recession, obviously, the forecasts have changed a lot over the last year. And we're predominantly focused on, I suppose, two core markets, North America and Europe. And they've ebbed and flowed and, and moved in different directions. I think what we're prepared for in the portfolio is, I think everyone gets obsessed about recession, you know, two consecutive periods of contraction. But the reality is, if the economy only grows 0.1, 0.2% every quarter, it doesn't feel very different to if it declines 0.1, 0.2%. To the average person on the street, it's still a sluggish economy. And I think we've tried to construct a portfolio that can perform well even during a period of economic stagnancy. And I think that's the sort of assumption we're working to. Whether it actually is a technical recession or not is to some degree neither here nor there. But our whole approach has been about developing an all-weather portfolio. And of course, nothing is entirely immune from the economic cycle. But when we look at companies like Visma, which is well known to investors and listed private equity, it's also a HG investment, but it's one of our largest um, exposures. A company like that can continue to grow even when GDP is not really moving or is even falling. And the reason for that is that it's just propelled along by a number of strong underlying growth factors that are not correlated in any way with the economic cycle. You mentioned the UK. I have to ask you this question, I think. I mean, there's been a lot of talk recently about the fact that the UK listed equity market is uh, shrinking and a lot of companies are heading off to the States to do IPOs if they get to that stage and so on. Do you think there are some issues here about the UK market that need to be addressed? And would you encourage the companies you invest in, the UK companies, to look at listings overseas rather than in the UK? First of all, I think one of the things that helps our asset class is that across the world, so it's not just in the UK, North America and other European countries as well. There is an increasing trend for companies to stay private for longer. That's actually something which I think supports our investment proposition. There's one of the things you get in accessing ICG Enterprise, companies that are actually quite difficult to access on the listed market. So the kinds of companies we like that are profitable, strong recurring cash flows in the mid-market with enterprise values of around 500 million euros or dollars, Actually, there aren't a huge number of those in the public markets globally. And I think that's a reason, trying to sort of turn the question on its head, I think that's one of the reasons why people should consider increasing their allocations to private equity. We don't really have a house view. I mean, ICG PLC is a longstanding constituent of the London Stock Exchange since 1994. And ICG Enterprise has been on the London Stock Exchange since, since 1981. We are therefore strong supporters as a house of the UK market We certainly would never advise our companies on where to list. We would leave that up to them. I know people think that there are um, advantages to listing, maybe in terms of the way the market rates certain companies. But, you know, we're relatively agnostic on that. And um, that's not something we would have a strong view on. Obviously, from from my perspective, a healthy UK market helps ICG Enterprise and helps ICG PLC. 
As you mentioned, you've got a long track record going back many years uh, through various iterations, I suppose it's fair to say, and different managers and, and different owners at different times, different so, names and everything like that. And the long-term record is very good. 30 years, I think it's averaging more than 10%, double-digit anyway, which is an impressive... I mean, just to put it into context, so we raised £20 million. I say we, I was, I think, at nursery at the time, but we raised £20 million in 1981, and um, that's grown into a portfolio of £1.4 billion, and that's been without any additional money being raised. So that's entirely through generating investment profits and the power of uh, compounding. Indeed. But within that period of 40 years since the first vehicle was started, there have been good decades and bad decades, let's put it that way. And you've changed strategy as well a few times. And I think the most recent one was about seven or eight years ago when you changed the regional allocation and you focused in on buyouts. It was more, I would say, the big change when we joined ICG was not so much the focus. We changed to a fund investment strategy in 2005. The big change in 2016 was starting our US investment programme. And we have a long-term aspiration, and we're more or less there, actually, to have around 50% of the portfolio in the US and 50% in Europe. And the reason for that was that we're very manager-led, so we're focused on backing the best managers. And quite simply, we just increase our addressable market of high-quality managers. And it's been really accretive to performance. We've been able to access some of the best names in the US. So that's something which you can see reflected in our five-year numbers. So my question was going to be there, that there's no plans to change strategy again anytime soon. Is that right? I guess looking across the private equity sector, I suppose one question I might put you is the dividend. You do pay a dividend, which not all private Indeed. equity trusts do, but it doesn't give you a particularly high yield. I think it's about 2.8%, something like that. Yeah. Is that a bit of a kind of half and half measure? Maybe you should be doing more on that front? What's the thinking around why that level of dividend yield? And is it actually a selling point or not, given that some investors in private equity don't want income, they want capital returns? What's your thinking about that? I'm smiling slightly at the question because it's one of those issues that really divides people. I remember having a round table with a selection of investors and the dividend question came up and everybody disagreed about it. So our approach is very much based on shareholder feedback. I mean, there's obviously a school of thought that says this is not a naturally yielding asset class and therefore shareholders are better off if we never pay a dividend and we pay the minimum dividend required under the investment trust rules. And then some people say, well, no, 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 you should aim to give your shareholders a high yield. The approach we have of having a progressive dividend policy, which has grown every year since 2016, is to offer our shareholders some form of return. It's part of that sort of one of the different ways we offer our shareholders return alongside buybacks and just generating strong investment profits. I appreciate that it's too low for some people, too high for others. But as I say, it's an approach which we've come to based on investor feedback. We think it works quite well. It gives investors some yield, but at the same time allows us to reinvest those capital proceeds, which obviously then free of any tax under the investment trust structure. And that means that investors benefit from long-term investment gains. Those kind of investment gains that have led the trust to grow from being 20 million in 1981 to 1.4 billion today. You've delivered over a long period of time, 10% plus, a bit more than that, actually. And uh, that's a very impressive right. long-term record. We don't know when the market may turn or not turn, whatever. But is it a reasonable question to ask you whether you think that those levels of return are sustainable over the coming period? And more, perhaps importantly, deliver positive real returns after taking account of inflation? How would you answer that if I tried to put you on the spot like that? Well, we're investing in an asset class, which, as you pointed out earlier on, is relatively high in terms of fees compared to other asset classes. And the reason that's sustainable is because it has historically generated strong outperformance, strong investment returns. If you look at the history of private equity, there is a strong track record of delivering double digit IRRs, money multiples. You know, you see, even after, say, the global financial crisis, even when, when I look at our portfolio, and deals that were done just before the storm hit in 2006, 2007. Even those deals, which many people perceive as being the worst possible timing, those deals still delivered two times cost IRRs in the mid-teens. And I continue to believe that the asset class is very nimble, very flexible, able to spot opportunities, and is able to deliver that consistency, often in different ways with the returns emanating from different sources, depending on the economic environment. But nevertheless, I think that the asset class has that potential. You know, certainly when we underwrite funds, we are only investing in funds that we believe can generate strong double-digit returns, what we think is an acceptable level of risk 
Obviously, it's dangerous looking into the future too much, but I think the asset class doesn't have a place unless it's able to offer that proposition. So obviously, we're not blind to the challenges the environment presents. But equally, when we speak to our managers, we can see that it's also an environment where you get opportunity as well. As I mentioned earlier, I think a lot of people in private equity will say that when you get volatility, that's when opportunity begins to unlock. So hopefully that's going to be the case over the next few years. Well, of course, one way to help get those returns would be if you could get the discount in from 40% to, say, 20%. That would uh, deliver a nice return to people. On terms of that, I mean, when, if ever, did you trade at a premium? I think that's very rare. But what has been the kind of normal experience, if I can say the normal experience? Would you say around 20% since you've been involved in the business? Is that around the level where historically you've tended to average out? So I've been working on the management of ICG Enterprise for the last 14 years. And I think that during more normal periods of pre-COVID, 10 to 20% was the usual range. But even then, even when the discount was 15%, we were working hard to try and reduce it from that level. As I say, I think the thing everyone forgets about private equity is just how new an asset class it is and how rapidly it's grown. And the unusual market conditions we had since the GFC of very low interest rates. And I suppose whilst we've had ups and downs, for a lot of that period, it was quite stable. I think in some ways, investors need to see how the asset class performs under more stress conditions, if you like, to generate confidence. So maybe I'm being overly optimistic, but I think to some degree, this is a very good opportunity for us to be able to demonstrate to investors the advantages of the private equity model. So that was Colm Walsh, the uh, co-manager of the ICG Enterprise Trust, ticker ICGT. We're going to have other private equity managers coming on in due course and uh, talking about what they're going to do to try and uh, solve their discount issues to the extent they worry about them, and also to talk about the prospects for the sector. It seemed like a very good week this week to talk to Emma Bird, Head of Investment Trust Research at Winterflood Securities and the property specialist in particular in the investment trust sphere about what's been happening in the commercial property sector this year. We've had a sort of blizzard of second quarter updates in the last few days. So I thought we might kick off by just asking you what the kind of general picture is, and then we can look at one or two specific names within the sector. So as you mentioned, we've just over the last few weeks seen the 30th of June NAVs be published by a number of property investment trusts amongst the diversified UK commercial property funds. A key trend there has been the negative impact of office valuations. So those funds with higher office weightings have seen more negative moves, impacts from that. In general, though, the moves have been generally positive even despite some negative impact from office valuations. The best NAV total return over Q2 we saw was from AEW UK REIT, followed by Aberdeen Property Income. And then the worst in that the diversified sector was Balanced Commercial Property Trust, which saw a slight decline in its NAV total return. So the background to this main focus of many people's minds is what's going to happen to interest rates. Bond yields obviously have gone up and the Bank of England continues to raise rates and so on. We're not quite at the end of that process yet, probably. So is it simple enough to say that if we get another rate rise, we might see a little more weakness in these trusts? Or if we see alternatively an end to the rate rises, that we will then see uh, values stabilise across the sector? I think there's more dynamics at play, but I think the outlook for interest rates is a key part of that. In particular, the outlook for interest rates is impacting confidence in the market and therefore impacting transaction volumes. And that in itself impacts the valuations and the lack of transactional evidence means that the valuations don't have the support. I think the expectations of interest rates is a key factor in driving the share prices of these property investment trusts themselves. So last month, when we saw a lower than expected inflation print in the UK, we actually saw quite a decent rally in these property investment trusts as the outlook for how high interest rates might have to go came down a bit. So it affects sentiment for the share prices as well. But that underlying valuations are being impacted by other things as well. As I mentioned, offices being key detractor for some funds, that's being hit by the change in working patterns post-COVID, so more working from home and different demands from tenants, so wanting more collaborative workspace, things like that. So there are underlying trends impacting valuations as well, not just interest rates. And if we look at the relative, say, dividend yields you get on the commercial property at the moment, 
and compare that to gilts. We often do that. We talk about the spread between the two. What is that looking like at the moment? And how has that changed over the course of, say, this year? Since kind of mid last year, yield spreads have narrowed as the gilt yield has risen. But we have seen the property share prices, the investment trust share prices react partially to this. And um, so the share prices have come down to increase the yields that the trust offer so that, that the trust themselves offer more of a yield gap. But underlying property yields that you have seen that spread narrow over this year. Where are we about on average? I mean, I suppose it varies from sector to sector. We know that some sectors are typically lower yielding and so on. But what's the average? Is it around about 3%, something like that, 300 basis points? That's the sort of figure I kind of have in my mind. So the average yield across the property investment trust space is about 7%. So gilt yields are around 4%, then um, yeah, about 300 basis points as the, as the spread. And that's a fairly typical historical figure, is it, within a band, plus or minus? The... 15-year average yield spread we calculate as being about 370 basis points. So it is below the long-term average slightly still, but not a million miles away. So there could be some change there if that spread was to change. Just one other general question. Obviously, there is a concern about whether or not we're going to get a recession or not in the UK. Opinions about that seem to differ. Some people say we might. Some people say we won't. Other people say it could be nip and tuck. Do you have a view about that? Or when you talk to the property trust, what sort of feedback are they giving you about the level of economic activity? I think, as you mentioned, the outlook does vary from person to person. I think there is definitely some concern over the UK economic outlook and the impact that that could have on their tenants, particularly in sectors like retail and leisure. So the impact that that could have on the tenants' profitability and therefore the valuations of the properties themselves. But I think there is some confidence that high quality assets will still be able to attract tenants and there won't be a widespread failure of many tenants. Well, let's talk about some of the specific trusts within the sector then. I think that would be an interesting thing to do because one of the things that strikes me looking at the figures for this year, for example, and looking back over longer periods, is that there is a very wide dispersion amongst these uh, trusts in terms of performance, share price performance uh, and NAV performance. So just looking at this year, for example, at the top of the list, I see a CT Property Trust and Edison Property Investment Company. Essentially, they're going to be corporate activity there. So they've actually seen gains over the year to date. That obviously is an interesting theme here. So do you think we're going to see more of that in the current environment? Uh, perhaps you could just remind us on those two cases what happened. So Edison Property Investment Company announced earlier this year that it was undertaking a strategic review based on its persistent discount and its small size. And so worried that it was being viewed as subscale and not attractive to investors in that way. So they undertook a strategic review and have recently announced that they are looking to undertake a merger. CT Property Trust was approached by London Metric, another UK REIT, and it, it was acquired and that acquisition completed recently. So City Property Trust has now left the investment trust sector. We've also seen Civitas Social Housing be acquired by a private fund. So that's another piece of corporate activity. And yeah, that has really impacted the share prices of those funds. That's where a lot of the positive performance has come from, is from this corporate activity. I think with discounts still as wide as they are across the sector, um, yeah, I definitely wouldn't be surprised to see more mergers either between funds or from private funds or other market participants recognise the value that's on offer and um, acquire them. Yeah, I think if discounts stay this wide, I wouldn't be surprised to see more corporate activity. So they were both amongst the smaller property trusts, you say less than 200 million market cap, and that seems to be an important threshold, obviously, for investor trusts generally not being big enough. There were special circumstances, perhaps in the case of Civitas, though I notice also that the third best performer this year is Triple Point Social Housing, which has a similar sort of business model, though not without some of the more specific issues there. But do you think there is a general read across here that basically, if these trusts can be effectively taken out at a, at a higher price than they're currently trading at, does that give you confidence that the actual ratings on uh, some of these trusts may have been overdone, the sector generally? Yes, I think so. I think it's important to remember that these are real assets. The underlying properties clearly do have value. 
then they will continue to have value. And we're not seeing the wide range of tenant defaults or lack of rent collection that we saw, for example, during the pandemic. So they are still earning income and paying that out to shareholders and the underlying properties do have value, as I said. So I do think that in certain cases, the ratings are overdone. And I think it is mainly just based on the relative yield play. So short term, there's obviously uncertainty because of where bond yields are going. But longer term, it does perhaps suggest that there is some value at today's share prices. If we look at the worst performers this year, by contrast, I mentioned three of them at least delivered positive returns. That's CT Property Trust, Edison and Triple Point Social Housing. Down the bottom of the table, if you like, we've got share price returns of minus 20% or more. I'm looking at the likes of Regional REIT, Balanced Commercial Property Trust, Aberdeen Property Income, Supermarket Income REIT and Residential Secure Income. Obviously, there are specific factors. They all have different strategies. But is there any general lesson to be drawn about why these kind of trusts have been the worst performers? Is it to do with their balance sheets or is it to do with other factors? I think it's a mix of factors. So for some of them, it will be concerns around their balance sheet, in particular, either upcoming refinancings or refinancing that have already had to happen at significantly higher rates in the current environment. So concerned that the impact that those higher financing costs will have on dividend cover, for example. Regional REIT, I think, has been hit. So that invests purely in regional offices. So I think that's been hit by the negative sentiment towards offices in general and particularly secondary quality offices in the continued changing working environment. So I think there are a number of factors at play. And yeah, they seem generally quite trust specific rather than one key trend impacting all of of those bottom performers. The other point though is just again, looking down the dividend yields, these tend to be amongst the highest yielders in the sector now. So I guess the question is, I'm just reading through regional double digit uh, dividend yield, balanced commercial property trust is around 6%, Aberdeen property income 8%, supermarket income 7.7%, residential securing 8.4%. So I guess the question is, you know, nearly every commercial property trust had to cut its dividend during the pandemic. Only one didn't. But are there question marks over the dividend sustainability in some of these cases, do you think? In some of the cases, I think so, yes, particularly either for those that don't already have full dividend cover or for those that are facing increasing financing costs and potential for upcoming refinancing requirements. So I think a key thing to look at is the current level of dividend cover and either hedging of financing costs that funds have in place, as well as when they might need to refinance at higher rates. Specifically in terms of supermarket income, that's one of the larger commercial property trusts we have, nearly getting on for a billion market cap and trading on a 20% discount or so. What are the issues there? They've had a very strong performance for a long time, but uh, is that mainly to do with balance sheets or is it more to do with the state of the economy? I think that one is more to do with the outlook for the economy, as well as just the relative yield attractiveness. It's got a pretty strong balance sheet, to be honest. It actually conducted a big refinancing just before interest rates started really rising rapidly. So it's got a low fixed cost of debt at just 2.9%, and it's it's 100% fixed or hedged at the moment. So I don't think that one is a financing issue. I think, yeah, it's to do with sentiment potentially towards the UK economy, although obviously supermarkets are non-discretionary spend. I think a lot of that is the yield factor. Interestingly, that fund actually used to include a chart in its presentations showing that the yield you could get from supermarket REIT and how much higher it was than an equivalent Tesco corporate bond, for example. But and clearly the yield gap between those two things has narrowed. So I think maybe people are like it, thinking if you want exposure to supermarkets, then why not just invest in a Tesco bond? That's a good point. But of course, it's been dramatic change in the rating of this one. It was at a premium for a long time and it's gone to this 20% discount. So that's a very big change, which I guess might raise some interesting possibilities. Let's look at some other trusts, looking at the kind of performance over five years, if I may, because obviously uh, a lot of people, when they own investment trusts, they own them for forever, as it were, they're buy and hold kind of investors. And again, there's some interesting five-year experience. I mean, again, I'm just reading down from the top, AUWUK at the top. That was the trust that maintained its dividend during the pandemic, 45% total return. On these figures, you may well have slightly different ones. Impact Healthcare, Warehouse REIT, LXI and Tritex Big Box all got double-digit five-year total returns. Not great in uh, 
annualized terms, obviously, but positive. And then down the other end of the scale, you've got a balanced commercial property trust again, Aberdeen Property Income Trust again, Edison, actually a poor performer. But more than half of these trusts actually have had negative total returns over the past five years. And that's pretty unusual, is it not? Yes, it is. And I think, as you say, a lot of that negative impact will have come in in the last 18 months or so as people that initially bought these for yield no longer found them attractive. I think you can kind of see from the top performance that you mentioned there how important this income element is to investors. So as you mentioned, AEW didn't cut its dividend at all during the pandemic. That really helped maintain its narrow discount rating. Other funds you mentioned, LXI, Warehouse REIT, Big Box have managed to deliver dividend growth over the years, whereas at the bottom end, Aberdeen Property Income and Balanced Commercial Property Trust cut their dividends during the pandemic and haven't increased them back above the pre-pandemic level yet. So I think, yeah, the dispersion in performance that demonstrates how, how important income is. Let's just look at a couple more trusts then on the basis. I've gone for some of the bigger ones because they'll be the ones that are perhaps most popular. So Tritox Big Box and its sister trust, Tritox Eurobox, B-Box and E-Box, they're the tickers. Tritox B-Box, and again, that's another one that's been massively derated. We know there were sort of scares about warehouses and Amazon and so on dating back some months. But it's also the fact that they tend to have lower yields and have to gear up more. What do you think the factor is behind the Tritax big back story? It's obviously gone again from a big premium to a big discount, uh, but has been coming back more recently. What's your feeling about that one? So I think a key issue there was that industrial and logistics assets, particularly these big boxes they invest in, had seen such strong performance over recent years on the expectation of continued rental growth from strong underlying supply and demand dynamics. So the underlying assets had seen very strong performance, which had really caused the yield to compress. So Going into the mini budget last year, some of these assets were yielding about 3%. And as soon as interest rates started to move, these were the assets that saw the biggest valuation falls based on that, the yield impact there. So they took some hit to their now from that, which obviously I think has impacted investor confidence there. And they are still fairly confident in the underlying outlook. The kind of occupational market still seems pretty strong with good demand for these assets based on increasing e-commerce and onshoring and things like that. So they are still expecting to continue to see rental growth, but it seems unlikely that we'll see the strong nav uplifts as we saw previously when the sector was having such a strong run. That's an interesting story. I listened to their presentation recently, and that raised some interesting questions as well, uh, not least about the extent to which these trusts, uh, like investment trusts generally, to what extent can uh, what we call asset management help to resolve the issues they have now, particularly they've got balance sheet problems? In other words, can they improve the properties they've got? Can they sell properties and realise them and so on? Is that happening? And if so, is it happening fast enough? Are uh, trusts doing enough if they've got issues to put them back in order? I think asset management is definitely a really key positive that managers can add to their portfolios, particularly in the current environment where we're not seeing natural valuation increases across the board. I think reinvesting in their current portfolio can really help to improve the resilience of that, whether that's through things like refurbishment, particularly to improve environmental quality is a big focus at the moment or uh, potential kind of development activity so extensions and things like that or another key part of asset management is kind of tenant negotiations implementing rental increases lease extensions things like that so i think it's a, a key way that managers can help drive value whether they're doing enough is an interesting question if they are looking to do refurbishments or extensions they need the cash to do that and it's not obviously a good time to be adding more debt to do that and they're all trading it at discounts so they can't raise new money either so that is obviously one of the things preventing any more asset management potentially in terms of selling assets and recycling we have seen some we've seen some disposals and acquisitions recently but something i'm hearing from managers is that it's not a great time to be doing that in the market at the moment because the valuations that you can get as a seller aren't what they think the properties are worth because you might be seen as a forced seller in the current market and there's just not the demand there from debt buyers 
I mean, one obviously use you can look at if you've got a wide discounts and if you've got the flexibility is, of course, to do some share buybacks. But that's really tailed off in this sector in the last 12 months or so. I think you put some data on that in your latest monthly review. Is it simply the fact that most of these trusts don't have the flexibility to do share buybacks? Because obviously it's an illiquid asset class, we know that. But also they may not have a lot of cash and they've got debt to pay and so on. Is that the reason why we've seen this uh, tail off in buybacks? Yes, I think so. We did see an increase in buybacks of mid last year. But in fact, this year, we've hardly seen any. I think that boards and managers would rather preserve any cash that they do have either to reinvest in their portfolio or to preserve in case that any interesting acquisition opportunities do arise, or even actually just to pay down any debt that they have, I think is a use of any disposal proceeds at the moment um, in the current higher interest rate environment. So I think obviously boards want to be able to demonstrate the value they see at the current share price levels, but there is a balance there between supporting the share price demonstrating the confidence in, in the valuations, but also preserving cash for other uses. Yes, I mean, it's worth making the point that every single commercial property trust now is trading at a discount, which wasn't the case before we had bond yields going up. So there is quite a close correlation there, obviously, some much more dramatic moves than others. Next down on the list of largest commercial property trusts is one that's very different, of course, and that is TR Property. It invests in equities or in other property companies rather than directly into property. The manager there, Marcus Fairmarch, we talked to him not so long ago, he's pretty bullish about the sector now. He thinks that there's potential for a recovery in, in share prices. Obviously, his own trust is trading at a big discount because you get a kind of geared effect. But what do you think about TR Property and uh, what he's been having to say recently? I think TR Property is a really interesting way to get access to the property market. And in the current environment, I think it's really attractive. You can, as you said, get into TR Property at a discount and everything that it's investing in pretty much is on a discount. So you could really see a double or even triple whammy of a re-rating if things do start to turn. Obviously, when that will be, no one knows. But for long-term investors, I think that's an interesting opportunity. And yes, he's obviously confident that we are potentially approaching the bottom of the market and we could see the, the turnaround. That is a way, if you want to take a, a geared view on the outlook for the commercial property sector, that's the way to do it. Quickly then, on some other names in the middle ranks here, let's talk about Target Healthcare and Impact Healthcare REIT. These are two specialist trusts that own and lease out to healthcare buildings. How have they been performing and what are your thoughts about them? So Target Healthcare, they announced a Q2 NAV update recently, positive NAV total return of 2.4%. Impact Healthcare announced its interim results to 30th of June and again had a a positive NAV total return over the period, as well as an uplift in Q2 as well. So these two funds, they invest in UK care homes. And a key attraction of these funds, I think, is that they have long-term inflation-linked leases. And that's been protecting the underlying NAVs as well and the property valuations um, because they've got these guaranteed rental uplifts coming through. Historically, Target Healthcare had poorer rent collection statistics, um, although still in the 90s, and also notably poorer dividend cover. But a few months ago, it took the decision to cut its dividend in order to deliver a fully covered dividend. So on a kind of prospective basis, they're both yielding similar yields of about 7.5%. Target is on a wider discount of about 30% compared to impact at 20% which could potentially be due to its historically worst kind of dividend cover record. What sort of gearing do these kind of trusts utilise? Because, I mean, the income streams are pretty secure, you'd think, going forward. You know, they're essentially backed by the, the state eventually, I think. So uh, what kind of gearing do they use? And is that an issue for them? So the LTVs for both of them are around 25 26%. I think for impact, their financing is something they are focusing on at the moment. Currently, 66% of their drawn debt is hedged against future interest rate rises. And they are looking into how they can increase that figure because they are seeing that increases in Sonia are leading to increased financing costs, which obviously impacts dividend cover there. So that is a focus for them. They mentioned in their interim results the other day. Target, however, has 100% of its debt fixed or capped. So they, they clearly have better visibility over their financing costs over the next few years. 
Just finally, perhaps we might talk a little bit more about LXI and value and index property income, which are trusts that specialise in long lease, inflation-linked leases and so on, which you would think was a very good long-term basis on which to invest in property. But they've been affected, obviously, by the rise in bond yields and quite dramatically in one or two cases. So what do you think the outlook for those are? And what kind of investors look to that as a source for getting their commercial property exposure? I think they're both interesting, particularly LXI. It's such a large liquid vehicle, which potentially might be some of the reason why it sold off so much. Just investors maybe found it easier to get their money out of that one. I think it potentially is overdone that sell-off at LXI. As you mentioned, it's long inflation-linked income and the fund itself is delivering dividend growth, which I think maybe investors forget about sometimes that some of these funds are delivering annual dividend growth, which you obviously don't get in a gilt. Um, So even though the absolute yield differential may have fallen since the rising interest rate environment. I think the dividend growth that these funds or some of these property investment trusts can offer is a really important differential and a key attraction. Yeah, so maybe we should be looking comparing them more to index-linked gilts than to nominal gilts because they've got long-life assets and also inflation linked to a considerable degree. So they are, I suppose, a special case. Overall, then, just looking at the sector, We've lost a couple. We're going to lose maybe one or two more down the bottom end. But how does the overall discount on the commercial property sector compare to where it's been at previous points in history? So obviously the GFC and the pandemic come to mind. It's fair to say that the mix of commercial property trusts you get now is very different to what it was 15 years ago because we've had these alternatives come along. But is there any kind of general comment we can make about the level of discounts uh, that we're seeing at the moment? I think the, the level of discounts, particularly in some cases, does seem overdone. I think as and when there is a turn in the interest rate cycle, we could see a significant bounce. Obviously, no one thinks rates are going back to the levels they were before, so kind of near zero interest rates. So it'll be interesting to see whether they do recover completely. But I think that will be a key turning point. So that was Emma Bird, the Head of Investor Trust Research at Winterflood Securities, uh, who's been talking to us about what's going on in the commercial property sector in particular. Thank you for listening. The Moneymakers Weekly Investment Trust podcast is independently produced and edited and is listed on all leading podcast channels. You can also sign up at the website money-makers.co to be notified every time a new podcast is available. Please note these podcasts are provided for educational purposes only and nothing you have heard from any of the speakers should be regarded as constituting investment advice. If you want more news, analysis, interviews and other investment trust content, don't forget to look at the Moneymakers Circle, available now for a modest subscription at the website.